As we get started, let me just mention, I just saw, I sent out an email, some of you might have seen it, uh, just before I left the house, that uh, there was a suicide bombing in Peshawar, Pakistan, this afternoon or today, and it killed about 80 Christians. And it's a church where, you know, we had Bishop Manu here last year that spoke from Pakistan, uh, the Anglican Church, and uh, this is one of the churches he oversaw. He's, uh, he's, no long, he's retired now, but he was four hours away, and he is actually there right now. There's a church of about 600, and after the service was over, two suicide bombers uh, set off a bomb, killed at least 78 and 150 injured. So uh, we want to pray for them tonight. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for uh, friendship, for uh, the Bible, for your church, for your people to gather together to learn about what you have to say about all kinds of subjects. But tonight especially we are grateful for uh, information that you've given us and instruction uh, that is perfect and inspired by your word, uh, by your spirit, for us to know about how to raise children. So, Lord, I pray your blessings not only tonight but in this study going forward that you would uh, be at work in each of us and prepare us and equip us and train us and, and give us everything we need to do this important work. We do remember our brothers and sisters tonight in Pakistan who have uh, been persecuted and who are suffering. Uh, we pray for their relief, for mercy upon them, for further protection. Uh, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me just give you a little idea of what I'm hoping to do in this study. Um, uh, we're going to do, a, I don't know, 45 minutes. We'll take a break, and then we'll uh, come back and do another 45. And the reason I'm doing it that way is simply uh, rather than dragging this out for 10 weeks, we can cram it into five weeks, and uh, hopefully we'll get enough of the material covered that way. And I'm not going to worry about, from my standpoint, you don't necessarily need to know this, but I'm just going to go for 45 minutes and find a stopping place and wherever I happen to be. So I'm not trying to, there won't necessarily be a tidy ending to lesson one and then a new topic for lesson two. We may be stopping in the middle of something and carrying on. I also want to allow a little time at the end, obviously, for questions. And also, as we go, if you have questions, I want you to feel plenty of liberty to ask or if you have a good illustration or a story or something, that's fine as well. Um, also, if you think of big questions that you think we need to be sure and cover, I may tell you, oh, yes, we're going to cover that, but I might say, well, that's a good one. I hadn't thought about that, or we'll be sure we spend a little extra time on that. Obviously, we have uh, folks here with no children, and, and as, as Chelsea said, their presence here should not be interpreted as anything other than... Uh, future future interest, okay? And we obviously have somebody who may give birth before the lesson's over, over here. Um, hopefully not here, but uh, we uh, we are on standby, right? All right. You sure you don't want to sit by the door? Okay. Um, all right. And and we have grandparents here who uh, don't have any children at home. Uh, anybody else in that category? Anybody? Any other grandparents? I don't think so. Uh, and then a number of folks that are everywhere uh, in between. How many of you have teenagers? Okay, just a few. Okay, so our, early on our focus 
is going to be on younger children, but we will be uh, uh, dealing with teenagers as well as we, we get there. Um, and I think what I'm going to do is sit down. This is what I do on Friday nights in Bible study, and I uh, hope you'll get used to that. Um, so, um, a little background for me, if you don't know my situation. We have three kids, grown, married, and uh, we have 13 grandchildren. I've taught on this subject a number of times. I was talking to my father tonight and told him I was going to go teach a, a class on child training, and he said, well, uh, he said, I probably needed you to teach me that class. And I said, well, I needed to do this for 25 years before, you know, hopefully gained a little bit of experience. One thing I, you'll hear me say uh, probably more than once, you cannot raise children for 20, 30 years, however long you have kids at home, and not learn a lot. I don't care how well you do it, how well you start, how much you know, um, you're going to learn things. That's part of the process. Uh, now, it's always better if you know a whole bunch going in and you learn that much more. You make fewer mistakes. But part of raising kids is God is raising us. God is sanctifying us. He's teaching us as we go. And so and I also believe that everybody in the community has a role to play in this process. So your, your immediate family, your <coughs> extended family, but certainly your church family, uh, people, grandparents, aunts and uncles, as many people as you can enlist to help you with these things, then the easier the job is to have it reinforced and so forth is extremely helpful. And so the first, as I begin here, obviously this is an introduction, so I want to lay some, uh, some broad uh, issues out before us, and then we will narrow in more and more as we go and deal with particulars. Great parenting... <clears throat> begins with a great marriage. A great marriage is essential. In fact, if you, uh, if you may not ever leave your kids any money or property or any material wealth, but if you can leave them a father and mother that loved each other, you've left them a fortune. There, there are very few things as valuable as that. Um, <clears throat> and so... Um, God is very gracious in all kinds of situations. I know there are single parents and all that, and God, I believe, uh, gives special grace in those situations. But if, you are, if you're married and you and your wife are not doing what you need to do with each other, that is, that is the first place you're going to need to focus your attention because that is harmful to your children if you're not uh, getting along and doing, being godly toward one another. Um, so, a great marriage begins with a sacrificing husband, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Men, your wife, this is really important, your wife is the most important person in your life. You must teach your children to love and honor their mother. When your children commit any offense against their mother, they've committed offense against you. The two of you are one. And it is essential that you back your wife up and, that sh and your children know that. Your home is not simply where your children eat and sleep. It's where they're trained and shaped. Let me say also one other thing about marriage. Marriage is the primary relationship. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Ideally, uh, you know, as Christian marriage, it should last till you die, till death do us part. 
and we know that <clears throat> there are situations that, that cause that not to be the case, but um, I'm assuming you that are married, that are here, that that is your intent. And so your children are going to do what? They're going to grow up, and at some point they're going to leave. And they're going to get married. They're going to start households. They're going to start families. So that what that means, moms and dads, is your children are not the primary relationship. And it's very easy for moms and dads, and I think especially moms, to let the children become the primary relationship and not the husband, and vice versa. Husband may let his career become the primary thing. And so it is essential that the husband and wife recognize that that relationship as husband and wife is permanent in this world, but the relationship with your children is that you're raising them to leave. Now, they're going to hang around, right? Okay? But they're going to hang around at a distance, okay? And then your husband or your wife is still going to be there. The most common time of divorce, three years, that divorce most often happens is year one, year seven, and year 20. Why do you think year 20 is in there? That's when the kids start leaving, okay, because we stayed together for the kids. I like to say we fought together. <laughs> you know, that wasn't for the kids, okay. So we somehow hung in there and, and stayed together, but then when all the kids were gone, that was the one thing holding us together. Now they're gone, and we can, we can go. So, uh, again, focused here upon what's primary is critical. And when you get that wrong, and when you start making your kids more important than your marriage, you're going to have problems with your kids, and you're going to have problems in your family. Your home is, again, not simply where your children eat and sleep. It's where they're trained and shaped. The home has to be their primary culture in the context of the broader culture of the church and then the even broader culture of the world. Obviously, they're part of the world, they're part of a state, they're part of a community, they're part of a church, and then they're part of your home. But um, obviously, the home is the place where you have the, the great control. Children are a gift from the Lord to parents, but the children belong to the Lord. They're, he gives them to you. I always like to say, you know, we, we baptize infants here, and the picture here is, and if you don't, I don't, I don't know your background, I don't know if you're Baptist, you would, you would have a similar idea, even if you don't do baptism, but the idea in, in infant baptism is parents bring their children to the church, which is the body of Christ, and say, here, we're handing over this child you gave us. We put God's name on that child and hand them back to the parents and say, now go home and raise them to the glory of God. Okay, because... Um, Again, the point here is that children are gods. They're a gift to parents, and then the parents take responsibility for them and then go home, and their goal is to raise godly children. Not just fill the earth, but to fill the earth with godly children. Uh, and so we have to keep that goal in mind. And so, uh, of course, if you're going to train your children to be godly men and women, then you're going to have to be godly. That's the hard part. Um, knowing and inculcating God's word then is central to the project. And a passage you're familiar with, but I want to read it because it is central, is uh, the passage out of Deuteronomy 6. And I'm going to go ahead and read all nine verses here, but it's very critical to us to understand what it is we're doing with our children. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you, moms and dads, 
may observe them in the land in which you're crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep his, all his statutes and commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now here's what's called the Shema of Israel. It, is a, it, was a, it would be a, something that the, uh, the Jews said frequently in their prayers because it's kind of one of the central prayers that would be prayed uh, or, or, or mantras, if you will. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Uh, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Which is another way of saying... God and his word are central to everything we're doing. Okay? The idea that it's written over the door is not necessarily literal, even though many Jews did literally do that. Uh, and you see uh, Orthodox Jews, little scrolls tied up here. That's, that's, again, missing the point. But it is a, is a reminder that when it comes to what you're thinking, what you're saying, when you rise up and you lie down, when you walk in the way, uh, as people come into your house, as they leave your house, the Word of God is, is what directs everything that goes on. That doesn't mean we're always walking around quoting Bible verses, though we should quote Bible verses plenty often, but we are certainly inculcating the ideas of the Bible, the thought process. We pray together. We talk about things. God's a part of the conversation that goes on in our homes with our kids. It's just the environment, if you will. In Him we live and move and have our being. And so the idea here is, again, that the Word of God is what directs us, not popular psychology, not uh, what works for me and what, uh, you, know, what do you, you know, that kind of thing. But we're going to the Word of God as authoritative. Uh, it is an application of Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, a passage every parent should really get into their bones that we need to be intentional. Um, sometimes... Uh, you know, most of us raise kids based upon how we were raised. We picked it up here and there. And then we have a baby, and then we don't particularly have a plan. And so we're going to do it however we've seen other people do it, particularly in our own households. It's kind of like having a quarrel. Um, when you have a quarrel, if you don't have a plan, if you, don't, if you hadn't thought about what God says to do when you and your wife or you and your husband have a quarrel, then you're going to do it the way they did it at your house the way your mom and dad did it. That's going to just be what comes out in a, in a moment of pressure unless you have self-consciously said, you know, I don't want to yell and scream. I don't want to throw things. That's not the kind of house we want to have. We're going to deal with conflict in a godly way, in a different way. We're going to make some changes. Of course, if you do that, guess what happens? Your kids grow up and it's a whole lot easier for them to deal with conflict because they saw you do it right. So you can change many generations by you making some commitments to make some fundamental changes. So let me say this. You were raised by somebody or several somebodies, and you were taught certain things, and some of it was self-conscious and some of it wasn't. Some of it was good and some of it wasn't. I often tell newlyweds as they're getting ready to start a new home, you know what, 
I want you to love your parents, and I want you to respect them. But they didn't do everything right. And if your parents love you, and I assume they do, then what I want, what they want for you is what I want for my kids, is I want them to do a better job than I did. I want them to do all the things that I did well. I want them to hang on to those, and I want them to do the things I didn't do well better than I did them. It's okay to say I love my mom and dad and I respect them, but I don't like the way they did such and such. I don't think that was as biblical as it should have been, and we're going to make some changes around here. We're going to say I love you more perhaps than was said when I grew up, or we're going to deal with things differently. We're not going to yell and scream, for example, when we're upset. Uh, So the melu, if you will, the the mix of life and all that goes on uh, is your dinner table. It's the morning walk, bedtime, late night vomiting, the spank on the hand as they reach for the hot stove, the comfort you provide after that. And so you must have embraced a standard before that happens. What I'm saying is all kinds of things happen every day. And if you have no plan and you haven't thought about it and you, you don't have principles that are guiding you in those situations, you're simply reacting to them, uh, you're going to be very frustrated and, and have all kinds of aggravations that are unnecessary. You're going to have plenty of frustrations and aggravations that are unavoidable, but we're trying to avoid as many as we can. By the way, I'm going to give you one little tip here. How do you know if you're doing a good job? Well, there's several ways, but I'm going to give you one right now. Uh, when you get to the end of the week, when you get to the last day of the week on Saturday, let's say Saturday night, and you just kind of look over your shoulder at the previous week, there should have been some tears. There should have been um, some, some challenging moments. There should be some exhaustion that you can remember during the week. Maybe you have some right then. But there also should have been a lot of joy. And if you don't have a lot of joy mixed in there with all that other stuff, you're not doing it right. That's the test. Now, I don't mean silliness. I don't mean triteness. I mean deep joy, pleasure. I see some good things happening. We had some laughs. We had some delightful meals together. We had some good bedtime prayers together. We had a lot of things that went on that are good in the midst of the melu, in the midst of the struggle. Okay? And so if all you're having is fatigue and, and sorrow and, you know, upset because, you know, nothing, you know, nothing is, you got all these rules, for example, that you're trying to keep and check off and make sure everybody's doing everything just right, then you're missing the point. This is about life and joy and bringing people to a place of delighting in God and in one another. So again, you're going to have the other, but you've got to have that too. Now, the Bible is sufficient for child-rearing. You don't really need Dr. Phil or Oprah, or when I was growing up, it was, it was uh, Dr. Spock, not Mr. Spock, but I guess he does that too now. But we, we don't need pop psychology here. We need God's Word. That's the sure and authoritative foundation. For example, you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine, that's teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if the Bible is sufficient to thoroughly equip your children for every good work, then I'm not saying you don't read books. You're sitting here in a class right now listening to me talk, but it's rooted in the Word of God. That's the, the critical thing, is we don't want to go out there and, and you know, see what, what is the latest thing uh, that, that's out there. And so more than well-behaved children, the goal is regenerate children. We are by nature children of wrath. Children are not innocent. Okay? It's a good thing they're cute. Okay? That keeps us from killing them some days. Okay? And having 13 grandchildren, let me say, don't kill your children. You'll be glad you didn't later when they, have, when they give you grandchildren. Children are not innocent. They are immature sinners. I like to say about that cute little infant that everybody's holding, oh, she's so sweet. No, she isn't. Well, she may be a little sweet, but actually what she's doing, she can't get around just yet, and she can't talk yet, but she's planning. Just as soon as she can. She's got her eyes on something she knows she's not supposed to touch, and she's going to go for it. Okay? The point is, little babies are sinners, and we need to understand that and not let their, their smallness and their youth and their cuteness get in the way of us remembering that. Uh, yes, they're cute. Yes, they're sweet in a lot of ways. But we always need to be on guard and remember what God has told us about them. And so, many people are excited about having a baby. But the Bible tells us to take heed and care in what we do with them after they get here. There are lots of people who have babies. Okay? There are animals that have litters of babies. Okay? But we're not animals. We're created in the image of God, and we have a different task than to just get them weaned and out the door. Okay? And so we are not to despise our children, and that can be done in two directions. First, by neglect. Second, by indulgence. Some people neglect their kids. They don't care what they do. And then other people indulge their kids. Oh, sweetie pie, what can I give you today? I'll give you anything if you'll just be quiet. If you'll just do what I want you to do. Okay? That is another way of despising your children. The Bible says that if you don't discipline your children, you hate your children. And so we should serve our children, but we should not cater to them. You see the difference? We are there to serve them. But we're not there to cater to them. We're not there to give them everything they want and to make sure they're never unhappy. Uh, in other words, you should tell your children no quite frequently. Not just to be mean. That's not what I'm saying. But there are times when they need to be told no. And guess what? They're going to cry. And they're going to be unhappy about it. And that's okay. okay? So parents who are, who are always worried about making their children upset or unhappy really love themselves more than their children. What they're really saying is, I don't want to have to deal with an unhappy child, and so I'll just get, give them whatever it takes to get them off my back. Uh, it's the same, it's a, it's a different kind of neglect. So parents, God's given you children, he's given you children to do something with them. And he wants and expects you to raise godly children. That is your number one responsibility. 
Um, so far, uh, so from the start, I'll be calling you to stop blaming others and to stop excusing yourself and your children. If you love your children, you'll do what it takes within God's boundaries to turn them into an adult that fears the Lord and one that's fruitful. We are not raising children. We are raising adults. We'll say more about that in a moment. Perhaps you simply need some instruction or some encouragement, but you might also need some rebuke and correction. Um, Children are both a gift and a responsibility. This class will not fix your child. If your child is broken or messed up, then you're the one that needs to be fixed. The only way your child's behavior or attitude is going to change is for you to change your behavior and attitude. So I'm speaking pretty bluntly for the next few minutes, but I think it's important to to put this on the table. Your children are growing up to be like you. Now, that ought to scare you, (laughs) but that means you need to pay attention. Your children will get better when you get better which means that you're going to have to take a long, hard, deep look at yourself in the light of what God says you're supposed to be doing and then get to work. Draw the line on discipline with your children. You will decide, using God's word as your standard, what is and is not acceptable behavior. And you will communicate the lines clearly to your children, and when those lines are crossed, the consequences must be imposed. Now, there is a time and a place for mercy, but that comes later. You must be committed to carrying out the discipline regardless of whether it is convenient or unpleasant or whether you feel good or not. And we're going to say a good bit more about this when we get to the section on discipline. I was talking to somebody just the other day. You know, I just I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. I cannot, I tell them to not listen to that kind of music and to not do this and not do that, and they just keep downloading it on their iTunes. And this is a parent speaking about their own children as though they had absolutely no say or control over any of that other than to be unhappy about it. It was happening. They were victims. The parents were victims. This is what my kids are doing to me. I told them not to do it, and they do it anyway, and I don't know how to get them to stop. Well, in this case, I don't think anybody ever taught them. And so that's why I'm glad you're here, and I know many of you are already doing that. But if you want to build a house, you need a good plan by a good architect. If you have a vision of what it's going to look like, then, if, uh, then you invest your time, money, and labor in completing the project. This is what parenting requires. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. God is the architect. You're the builder. Consult the plans often. Every baby shower should include a set of plans. I guess we'll just give everybody a Bible. Okay? Um, the world will have to live with the adult that you raise. I saw that Ginger Lieberman had something on Facebook today. Some of you may have seen it. It was a picture of a screaming kid, and it's something to the effect of uh, uh, everybody seems to be worried about whether we're going to leave the world better for our children. And probably what we ought to be concerned about is leaving better children for the world. Um, that would probably be a better project. All right, so here's a question. What do you want your child to look like when they're 35? 
What kind of worker? What kind of spouse? What kind of father or mother? What kind of church member? What kind of friend? What kind of citizen? What kind of Christian? If you don't get this right, then it will continue for generations. And if you do get this right, it will continue for generations. Hindsight will not work here. Only foresight works. I'm going to take a moment to read a longer section here from Nate Wilson's new book, Death by Living, which I'd recommend to you. Um, I just think in terms of us getting started in this study, it just lays out a pretty good picture here. He says, the truth is that a life well lived is always lived on a rising scale of difficulty. As a little kid, I had a job. Obey my mother, don't lie, play hard, be kind to my sisters. At the time, that job was actually difficult. My mom kept saying things like, come here, and no jumping on the couch, or don't stand on the doorknob and swing on the door, and no hitting. But my sisters were there, and so were my fists, and the couch was bouncy, and doors are cool to swing on. Man, I was bad at my job. I remember the existential despair as I stood in the front yard of our duplex with my real yellow fiberglass bow with a real arrow on the string, but on that arrow's tip, a tube sock with red stripes duct taped on tight. I still managed to shoot it over the fence. I remember kneeling on my top bunk and pounding nails into my wall in a long winding row that even crossed my Seattle Seahawks poster. Throughout my childhood, the second most common bad sound effect was most likely glass shattering, only occurring slightly less frequently than the yelping of a sister. But I was supposed to push the limits. That was my job at the time. I was supposed to live as fully as I could within the boundaries of the law. I transgressed often, but a balance between full throttle living and obedience was found with much help from a wooden kitchen spoon. I learned how a raw egg reacts beneath a hammer and how far I could throw a hatchet. Sure, I mounted toilet paper up in the toilet bowl and then lit it on fire, but at least I flushed. (laughs) And just as I began to get get good at my job, I got promoted. The law remained the same, but the number of ways in which it was possible to transgress radically increased. I was bigger, I was faster, I was at school. It's that way for all of us. But the promotions come regardless of whether or not we've actually improved. If you are bad at being two, you will be bad at being four. If you are bad at being four, you'll be bad at being six. Temptations increase. Potential falls multiply. If we look at a two-year-old attempting to overthrow righteousness and establish evil in all the land, and we snicker, uh, we, uh, he said, that's what we do. Lazy parents tell themselves that the we little he or she will outgrow this tendency of theirs. Yipes, wrong, buzzer, gong. What they mean is that the child will grow into someone else's problem. Once they are at daycare, the struggle will be out of sight and will be dealt with by other struggling peers and, and or other unrelated adults or not. 
The school year is escalating difficulty and multiplying temptations. Add sports and friends and hormones and petty power structures. You can now sit in huge chunks of you can now sit in huge chunks of hurtling metal, referring to cars, taking the lives of every one of your passengers and every passenger and every other passing chunk of metal and every passing pedestrian and every passing bicycle into your irresponsible hands. You can now make mistakes that kill people and you. Off to college and uh, mustachioed professors will pour nonsense all over you. You are ready uh, you, you are ready or you aren't. Peers wallow in every kind of debauch. You are ready or, or you aren't, and you can now, far more easily than in high school, ruin your life forever. You are now on your own, and then you aren't. Other real-life real life souls are now depending on you. You are the creator of their childhoods. You are the influencer of their dreams and tastes and fears. You are the MC of all reality, the one to introduce those small people to the true personality of their maker as imaged by your life more than your words. The choices you now make have lives riding on them, always. Their problems and struggles are yours to help them resolve. Their weaknesses, yours, their weakness, yours to weaknesses yours to strengthen or not maybe they'll grow out of them this x marks my spot i am here for good and ill i am a molder of childhoods an instiller of instincts a feeder or famisher of souls a sensi of humor i am an image of god stunted and vandalized but all the earthly father my kids can have thank god for faith and bulk order grace I just thought that was a beautiful image of, you know, what we're talking about here. So when you're dealing with your two-year-old, your four-year-old, your six-year-old, it's very critical that we understand that we not just blow by those as somehow these are just phases. You know, dealing with an issue at four is way easier than dealing with it at 14. And if it's not dealt with at four, you will be dealing with it at 14. And if it's not dealt with at 14, the world will deal with it at 24. And it might get them shot, or fired, or divorced, or something. So when you're struggling, moms and dads, day by day with the little ones, I want you to keep that in mind. This is really important work. Why is our culture in the mess that it's in? Do we really have to ask that question? It's because... Uh, is it because we were paying attention? Is it because we were doing what God said to do? Is it because we were dedicated to raising a generation of godly and responsible adults? Messes are multi-generational to the point where we don't even notice the messes anymore. They just look normal. Our national debt has gotten to be nearly $17 trillion, $1 at a time, and our children are going to get either to be godly or ungodly one day at a time. Now, reasons, I'm going to give you some reasons why your kids do what they do. Number one, you let them. 
That's the number one reason kids do what they do is you let them. They become what you let them become. You can blame lots of other people and things, TV, movies, Internet, peers, school, whatever. But at the end of the day, they become, they do what they do because you let them. You didn't stop them. Number two, your kids uh, do what they do because there are no consequences for bad behavior. Kids need to know what is acceptable and unacceptable. There must be consequences for unacceptable behavior. If you do this, I will do that. And we're going to talk more about that, about being on the same page as husband and wife and as parents and dealing with our kids so that we're as consistent as possible in that. But I had a, a saying that I said often, which is, I meet force with more force. I don't mean anything. I, I, let me just say this once because I don't want to have to say it 9,000 times during this study. I'm again, you know, we are not ever talking about cruelty, harshness, uh, ungodly anger. And those, are, those are ungodly. We're, when we talk about disciplining our children, it's always in the context of love and seeking their good. But it is important that we understand at times it does need to be very firm and insistent. And when it comes to, the, to what the limits are, the limits are the limits. And you decide what they are, and they're going to look a little different from house to house, but hopefully all still within the bounds of Scripture. But if you don't enforce those limits, and there are no consequences for having violated them, uh, you may have saved yourself a tiny bit of trouble that moment to not have to have a, a showdown. But if you, don't, if you don't win that showdown, then you're going to have a bigger one later, and you will lose it probably. And then it will be really costly. You can't close the barn door after the cow's out. And so I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I deal with teenagers and older teenagers and, and parents whose hearts are broken because they didn't either know or didn't do these things earlier. Number three, uh, your kids do what they do because you tell your kids they're special, but they aren't. If you tell them they're special, you do them and the rest of us a huge disservice. Your child is special to you, but not to anybody else. But your love is unconditional. There's a difference. Your love's not earned. You love your children, no matter what. But don't tell your, your sweet little child, oh, you're special, as though you're somehow special from all the other children in the world that are also to be raised to the glory of God. Um, number four, your kids do what they do uh, because you made your kids the most important thing in your life. Now, when I say your kids do what they do, we're talking about when kids are misbehaving here, okay? Um, your kids are not the most important thing in your life. Okay? If you allow this, they will manipulate you. That's kind of their job. <laughs> At least, you know, they have to learn the system, learn how to fly under the radar, and learn how to get you to do what they want you to do. And so the kid that's throwing himself on the floor having a temper fit because you wouldn't give him a popsicle, he's, he's trying that out to see if that'll get him a popsicle. And if he doesn't get him a popsicle and gets him a pop instead, uh, then maybe he won't be doing that again. But if it works, he's going to do it again. Okay? And so your kids are not the most important thing. They are important, but they're not all important. Your husband or your wife is more important, and God is over all. 
Children must not be the center of your life. It's hard, I know, because they have so many demands and so many urgent things and so many things to take care of, but it's, then it's easy to lose sight. There is a sense of entitlement that then becomes pervasive throughout our culture. Bailing your kids out is not good for them. Indulging them regularly is not good for them. Indulge them on their birthday. Indulge them randomly when they weren't expecting it. But don't indulge them all the time. Okay? And don't bail them out when they get in, in every situation. When they get in trouble, let them pay some consequences. Does that make sense? I, 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 tell, I tell my dad the other day, dad's 81, we were driving down to Houston and we were just talking about various things. I said, you know, I, I, you told me something when I was about 14. Um, you told me, he, my dad told me a lot of things, and, and I remember a lot of them. I didn't remember them then, but I remember them now. And that's another thing to keep in mind. That you think they're not listening, but at some point, sometimes it takes a while, some, they come back and say, thanks. <laughs> I was paying attention. Um, but he told me when I was 14, by the way, just out of the clear blue, I wasn't in any trouble yet uh, that he knew of or that I knew of, but he said, by the way, if you ever get arrested and you have that one phone call, don't waste it on me. Call somebody who cares, because I'm not bailing you out. And I believed him. I never got arrested. That, that's a separate story, um, a miracle to some degree. But, um, but I believed him. I, I would not have called him. <laughs> I would have called somebody else. Um, so I think that's just a good principle. Uh, your kids do what they do because you work so hard at giving your kids healthy self-esteem. Do you really want your children to regard themselves highly or favorably with respect or admiration? High self-esteem does not enable your kids to do great things. That's a myth. Okay? Doing great things will give your kids self-esteem. Don't get it backwards. I'm going to give my little kitty self-esteem and then someday he'll do great things. No, why don't you get him to do some great things now? Maybe like clean your room. Okay, that'd be great. Good job. Is he going to feel good if he does a good job and he gets praise for it? Yeah, he's going to, he's going to feel good about himself. But make sure he's feeling good about himself because he did something, not just because he is who he is. Okay? Um, appropriate praise and criticism are called for. No, you did a lousy job and I'm not going to make you feel good about it. You're not getting an A on this, you're getting a D. Now go back and give me an A. Okay, and I'll be happy to praise you when you get an A, and then you will feel good about yourself. But you're going to feel good for the right reasons. You see what I'm saying? We live in a world where we think we've got to somehow make everybody feel, and we see that in the public school system and other ways where we, you know, we're not going to grade people anymore, and we're not going to have competition anymore, everybody gets a trophy, uh, you know, and, and uh, that way nobody feels bad. Um, your kids do what they do, or kids do what they do, because you turn to medicine to fix what you're too lazy to deal with. If your kid doesn't have a lot, if your kid does not have a short attention span, there might be something wrong with him. Okay? Most kids have to be told to pay attention. If they're down, put them to work. Now my kid's moping around. Give them a job. Everybody has ups and downs. Productive people work through it. Your kids do what they do because you set a bad example and your kids follow it. 
Kids do what their parents do. That's a big part of the problem. Your kids are like you. Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle, you know that song, some of you? And here's one of the lines. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, the father says, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And then finally, uh, your kids do what they do because kids are, out of con- and kids are out of control because their parents are not in control. Kids are out of control because their parents are not in control. You, you are in charge. God put you in charge. You are the boss. You're bigger than them. You're stronger than them. You're smarter than them. You have all the controls. You, you provide their food, their shelter, their clothing, their friends, what they read, what they watch, their extracurricular activities. You get to decide what time they go to bed, whether they have to eat what's on their plate. You are in charge. They aren't. And if you ever let that get backwards, then you're losing. And so are they, by the way. Because all of this is about love. When you are in charge and you do what's good for them, that is love. Love is doing for somebody not necessarily what they want, but what they need. That's a really important distinction to make. Now, oftentimes, as we love people, we are giving them what they want. But sometimes when we're loving them, we're telling them no. Um, Okay, Um, a few more things and we'll take a break here. Um, perhaps you've read books, heard lessons or sermons on this topic. Uh, you've probably had many conversations with friends as well. It is a sensitive subject, partly because it concerns children, partly because we often feel insecure in our parenting. And it's easy for us to become defensive, which makes it hard to learn and grow. Get over it, please. One of the things I'm going to ask you to consider doing, many of you heard me say this before, parents, you ought to have at least one other family, one other set of parents that you trust, that you know love you and love your children, and go to them and and say, could I come to you occasionally? Not every week, not every day, maybe not even every month, at least three or four times a year, and ask you, how am I doing? And not many people actually do this, but the ones who do really benefit. It's really following Proverbs. Wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Any of you have blind spots in your parenting? Where are they? You don't know, do you? They're blind spots. Do you see other people's blind spots with their parenting? Uh, We've got a keen eye for that. Okay. Don't you wish you could tell them? Boy, somebody needs to tell them that they're letting their son get away with such and such, and if they don't get control of him, you're talking to your husband or wife on the way home from church, you know, if they don't get control of that boy, they're going to have trouble down the road. And so you all have that conversation, you know, three times a month on the way home from church, but you never have it with them because you kind of think, well, you know, I don't want anybody really telling me about my kids either, so I'll kind of keep it to myself, and they'll keep theirs to themselves, and we'll all go do our things separately. But one of the things about community that's important is, and again, I realize there are some people you may not trust or you don't necessarily think that they would be the best ones to give you that point of view, but you need to find at least one other couple you can do that with. And when you ask them, you say two other things. Number one, you don't have to wait for me to come ask you, though I do plan to do that. 
And so if you see me doing something or you see my kids doing something, would you come? And number two, don't worry about hurting my feelings. I know you love me. Now, that's a scary thing to ask. I actually think you ought to do it in other areas too, but at least on child rearing, you really need to do that. Um, uh, even if you heard some of these things that we're going to talk about, which I presume you have, uh, you're going to benefit by hearing them again because we forget and because we disobey, because we have more to learn, because we're currently engaged in the task. We always need to know what the Bible teaches on this subject if we have correct practices, if we're to have correct practices and hope to see fruitful results. Many parents are more than willing to admit that they fail in many ways when it comes to child rearing. They complain sometimes about how bad their children are. They'll express their frustration with the enormous burden of the daily task. Nevertheless, there's often an equal resistance to admitting to particular failures. There is a natural defensiveness when the specifics are discussed. Haven't you evaluated the child-rearing of other families? I won't ask for a show of hands. I don't need to because I know the answer is yes. You have talked about other people. Should I say shame on you? I don't think so. Maybe. You know, you can be a gossip and you can be unkind, perhaps. That's not what I'm talking about. If you did that, ask God's forgiveness and don't do that again. But you should be talking about how other people are doing it. You should be paying attention. That's why you live in community. It's why you're around other people. Some are doing it well, some are doing it very poorly, and you ought to say about the ones that are doing it poorly, let's not do it that way. And the ones that are doing it well, man, I want to be like them. And, of course, it would be great is to go talk to them and say, how did you do that? You know, I'm really impressed with your teenagers. How do you get teenagers like that? Do they fall out of the sky? Or did you actually do something? And uh, that's some of the things we want to look at. So um, you, uh, you have, uh, haven't you seen things you approve of, things you disapprove of? None of us are immune from this evaluation, either giving it or receiving it. So not only have you talked about the other families that you know, they've talked about you. Now, again, that ought to be a good thing. Number one, we have much to learn from others, positively and negatively, as I mentioned. This is one of the reasons God puts us into churches and communities. Most parents do some things well and other things not so well. The blind spot or weakness for one set of parents may be an emphasis or strength for another set of parents. There's no one without blind spots. Usually those who think they have it all figured out have blind spots big enough to drive a truck through. It doesn't show up till four years down the road because everybody knows that you can't say anything to them about it. But then when their kids start falling off the cliff, they don't know what happened. Second, this ought to give us a measure of humility, knowing that we too are being evaluated and that we too have shortcomings. There is never room for arrogance in child training. We all have much to learn from the Word of God and from one another. Third, this ought to give us much patience and grace with one another. Remember, when you're being critical of someone else's blind spots and failures, you too are still in school when it comes to the subject of child rearing. Your method may be a good method, but it might not be the only good method. 
And it's only the grace of God that will bring success to the child-rearing process anyway. And when I say that, there, I mean there's obedience. We should be obeying God, but it's not my obedience that's going to produce good children. It's God blessing that obedience. You see the difference? I like to think of the loaves and fishes. I've got some loaves and fishes. I've got to have some loaves and fishes. Okay? But they're not going to get the job done. They're, they're inadequate by themselves. But if God blesses them, then it starts feeding the multitude. Okay, so grace is essential. That's why we're going to be praying, we're going to be studying, we're going to be taking advantage. God gave us each other as gifts to learn from. And if we're not doing that, then we're not taking advantage of the tools he gave us for this job. We have all failed at many points in our child rearing, and that's unavoidable. We have sinful, sin-filled children born to sinful parents in a sinful world, and you can't, as I said, raise children for all these years without learning a lot. Profitable child rearing always requires an enormous amount of grace. We can't save ourselves by our own good works, and we can't save our children by our own good works. One of the central features of God's purpose for households is a multi-generational objective. I want you to, parents, right now I want you to think about raising, what kind of grandchildren do you want? Because they don't fall out of the sky good. Okay? You've got to raise good kids to get good grandkids. And so what I want is ra- I want to raise kids that are better than me. And, and you think about it. If I'm raising kids for 20 years, I start here, and I'm learning. And so hopefully by the time my kids are adults and marry, they have the advantage of my 20 years of learning. And that's, they get to start at a level higher than where I started. And then if they do that, then my grandkids start at a level higher than they did. Our goal, by the way, is to conquer the world with the gospel. And in a few generations of doing that, that can really start to have a powerful impact in the world. And so as a parent, we are engaged in the most important and powerful work imaginable. This is central to the gospel. At the close of the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet, who's John the Baptist. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. That wasn't a new program. That was what God did with Abraham and that the Jews had forgotten. And God said, if that doesn't happen, I'm going to smite the whole land with a curse. And so here comes John the Baptist in the opening chapters of Luke, and the angel tells Zacharias, his father, He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children because that's what the gospel does. The gospel starts looking in a multi-generational way. And so most of what you do goes unseen and unappreciated. Parents are engaged in that really powerful, the most powerful work imaginable, but it's unappreciated but we didn't see and we do not fully appreciate the millions of hours of faithful Christian service that went before us. You, uh, excuse me, yet the impact of that labor lives on. We're part of a river, a great river that flows ever downward through history and it matters what was upstream and it matters what we contribute or it'll flow downstream for many generations. I'm going to close this first section with a quote from theologian uh, Robert Dabney. He wrote this over 100 years ago. The education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. 
It is the one business for which the earth exists. To it, all politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinated. And every parent, especially, ought to feel every hour of the day that next to making his own calling and election sure, this is the end for which he is kept alive by God. This is his task on earth. And I think we'll just stop there and take a few minutes break, and we'll come back and take up from there.